You know, there are certain dates that uh, you accumulate throughout the course of your life that just become very meaningful and significant. And uh, one of those dates for me, there are a number, but one of them is February 19th, 2018, just over four years ago. That was my first day officially as the lead pastor of Linwood Wesleyan Church. And uh, thank you. We celebrate that milestone. Sometimes people who've been here for a while tell me, you know, you were just what we needed. God sent just what we needed. And we feel exactly the same way. This church was just what we needed. And we are so blessed and so grateful to be the pastor here, Heather and I, our boys. We love this place. And we love that our boys in particular love this church. And uh, we are grateful to be here and, and look forward to being here for many many more years. Uh, We're starting a new sermon series today, and it's titled Turning Tables, and I'm excited for it, and every now and then I get so excited about a sermon series that I kind of like preach the whole sermon series in the introduction to the first message. I'm not going to do that today. I'm just going to tell you, we are going to look at tables from a variety of different angles. You might be saying, well, why would we do that? Well, if you read your Gospels, you will see that Jesus did a lot with tables. Sometimes he flipped them, (laughs) sometimes he turned them. And sometimes he turned the tables metaphorically on who was in and who was out. Read the Beatitudes, and you'll see some tables getting turned. And he did a lot of ministry at tables. And he spent time with people that nobody was spending time with around tables. And so we're going to look at that, and we're going to focus on that. And today we're going to look at a message, as Pastor Zach alluded to, titled, Flipping Tables. And while that's kind of a vernacular today, the idea that you get so excited you flip a table, we're looking at it in a little different light. We're looking at it in the light of Jesus when he goes into the temple and he turns over the tables. He flips the tables. And oftentimes that phraseology is used in, in a frustration. I'm so mad I flipped the table, right? And, uh, and so that's more what we have in view here um, The context for this is interesting. We're going to be looking at Mark's presentation of this. Interestingly enough, this story appears in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are the ones that follow a more chronological order from Jesus' life uh, and ministry. John takes a little bit different approach. And so some commentaries have speculated, okay, is John presenting this in John chapter 2? Is he saying that this happened early in Jesus' ministry as well? Or is he kind of moving it there for thematic or dramatic effect? Most commentaries land on the, on the first option there, that this happened more than once. Once is sort of a precursor at the outset of Jesus's ministry and here at the end of Jesus's ministry to, uh, to basically speak judgment on the temple system and what the people of God, the, the, the Jews and the religious leaders had done with it. So I'm going to read this passage straight through. It's from Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to open it to that. If you're here in the sanctuary and you want to grab one of those pew Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 1573. It's also going to be on the screen. And so Jesus, we're told in verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling the doves. And he would, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. 
And the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Now, there's a couple things that are are significant and interesting about this passage. As I mentioned before, this is right at the end of Jesus' ministry. This is the final week of Jesus' life. And so on Sunday, he enters into Jerusalem, and they are shouting Hosanna, and they're saying, which means, Lord, save us. And they're saying, this is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then on Monday, he's flipping tables. And if you read back into the context a little bit, you'll see that, that Jesus visited the temple the night that he arrived in Jerusalem. The night of the triumphal entry. If you go back to verse 11, which we didn't read that whole passage. But we're told that he entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And I think that's important. I think that's a significant detail. Because when he comes back on Monday morning, he's not just having a case of the Mondays. Right? You've heard that phrase before. He's not just in a bad mood because it's Monday. He went... And saw what was taking place. And he had time to think about it and reflect on it. And I think that's significant. Because sometimes we read this story and we use it to sort of justify our own bad temper. It was, well, Jesus lost his marbles when he saw what they were doing in the temple. But Mark makes it really clear that he was there, he saw, he had time to think and reflect. And this was more an intentional act that Jesus did. And it set up a teaching. Don't miss that. In verse 17. That as he taught them. So what was it that got under Jesus' skin? Was it the smell of all the animals? Was it the noise? I'm sure those things were upsetting. But I think what really got under his skin was the exploitation of the foreigners and the poor. That was taking place in God's temple. In God's house. You see... Historians and and Bible scholars point out that this was set up in the court of the Gentiles, which was an outer court around the temple, and that those who were Gentiles who were coming to worship God were supposed to be able to worship there, but they weren't allowed to come into the, the more holy places because they weren't circumcised believers. They weren't the people of Israel. And so that's where they set up this marketplace. And so there's people that are coming, there's people that are curious, there's people that are being drawn to God that aren't having access to God because that's where they've decided to set up these tables to exchange currency. You see, you could only pay the temple tax with a certain currency. And so if you came from another part of the, of the world, you had to exchange the currency. And there was a markup that benefited the people sitting at the tables. Or if you came and you didn't have sacrifice to bring, you didn't have the animal that you needed to bring for the Old Testament sacrifice, then you could purchase one there. At a highly inflated price, right? You ever been to a sporting event and suddenly a candy bar is worth $4? Bottle of water is worth 3 It's like, wait a minute, I can get a whole case of 40 at Costco or Sam's for $3. And you want me to pay 3 for one? Why? Because you have it here and I don't. And the same thing was happening here. And that's what got under Jesus' skin because they had taken the focus off of God and had used the people that were coming to God as a means to exploit and to take advantage. And that's why he flips the tables. 
of the money changers and the benches of those that were selling doves. And yet, he's, this is all in the context of a teaching, and don't miss that. This really stood out to me this time in verse 17. It says, as he taught them, and he starts quoting scripture. So there was this dramatic display of emotion, and it was strong, and it was forceful, but there was a teaching that was married to it, and Jesus is making it very clear, and he's quoting Old Testament prophecy. He's quoting what the religious leaders should have known about this. And he says to them from Isaiah 56, my house will be called a house of prayer. That finds itself in a broader passage. And so you don't necessarily need to turn to Isaiah 56, but verses 6 through 8, Isaiah is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking under the burden of prophecy. He's speaking on behalf for God when he says, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and all who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. God is saying, I'm going to bring people from the outside. Remember last week when we were talking about Jesus, uh, when he's speaking and he says that many will come from the east and from the west? He's basically saying there's going to be a lot more people come from the outside than come from the inside. And the same thing is, the same point is being made here. Verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. That's what God says about those people he's going to bring from the outside. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Not just Israel. For all people not just the Jews. This was really important to God. This was really important to Jesus. And so in verse 8, the sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. And so there he's speaking about the exile. This was a period where the northern kingdom fell and they were taken off to Syria. And then the southern kingdom fell and they were taken off to Babylon. And so they call this the exile. And there was this great dispersion of the people of God. The majority of them left the nation, the territory of Israel, the physical territory of Israel to go to other places. And he's saying, I'm going to bring them back, but I'm not just going to bring back the ones that went. I'm going to bring back more with them. I'm going to bring back other worshipers who are going to come into the family of God, into the people of God. What the enemy meant for evil, I'm going to mean for good. Why? Because my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And I was so blessed this week. Every single day, people were coming to this church to pray through this church for that lock-in that Pastor Zach was celebrating. Every single day we had multiple people that came and they prayed and they walked around and they prayed for the safety and they prayed for the sanity and they prayed for the salvations. And I believe we saw the fruit of those prayers. And it got me to wondering, what if that was every week? What if everybody that calls this their church home said, you know, in my week I can make it to the church to pray. I can walk through the church and pray. I can walk through the sanctuary and pray. And so maybe you have a trip up and down 57th Street in your week and you could stop for five minutes, ten minutes, an hour, and you could pray. What would the multiplied impact of that be? Dozens of people week after week praying through this church that this church, Linwood Wesleyan Church, would be a house of prayer where God's people are coming on a regular basis to pray. And to pray that God would send us those people from the outside, that they would find a home here, that they would find a place where they belong where they can grow in their faith. 
And he contrasts that language from Isaiah that his house would be a house of prayer for all nations with another phrase from prophecy from Jeremiah 7.11. I can't say 7.11 without thinking of Slurpees. I don't know. It was my childhood, right? Like we had one just down the street and I had Slurpees all the time. But Jeremiah 7.11 doesn't talk about Slurpees. Jeremiah 7.11 says, Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? Has this house, which bears my name, this is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, has it become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. And so what was intended to be a house of prayer for all nations where people were praying for others has turned into a den of robbers where people are praying on others. Different spelling of that word praying, exploiting, taking advantage of. And it's fascinating to me the the response that this gets. There's no conviction. They don't respond to the conviction well. I should say there was conviction, but they don't respond to it well. We see in verse 18 and 19, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. Why? Because they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Same word we looked at last week when Jesus marveled at or was amazed at or astonished by the centurion's faith. They were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed at his boldness. They were amazed at the content of his teaching. And so there was no repentance. There was only fury. There was only anger. There was only this passionate decision. We must kill this man or we will lose everything that we have fought so hard to get. And so our bottom line today is don't sit at tables that Jesus would have flipped. Make sure you're not sitting at tables that Jesus would have flipped. And make sure you're not defending the people who are sitting at tables that Jesus would have flipped. And you might say, you know, I don't think this room really applies, Pastor Mark. We don't have tables out here. We're not trying to exploit people. I think Linwood's doing really well. Thanks for calling our attention to this important issue, but I think we're just fine. And maybe you're right, but maybe there's more to it than just direct exploitation. I know this passage of Scripture cut me to the quick once, because there was a time in my life before I was a pastor where I was selling insurance. And every time I was at a church function, I wanted to make sure I had my business cards. And I wanted to make sure that people knew that they had an option to purchase their insurance from a believer. You want that commission to get tithed on, don't you? And I went way beyond sort of networking to going there in order to get some business. And the Lord convicted me on that. And I made some changes. Little did I know he was actually going to call me into ministry at some point as well. But it can go beyond that too. It can go beyond the networking to where we're we're really just there for us. And I think that's maybe the deeper issue. This idea of consumer Christianity is alive and well in America. And sadly, some people are just looking for a church that meets their needs, that gives them what they're looking for. And they show up and they get what they wanted and they go away. 
And so they're not necessarily exploiting or keeping people out. They're just there only for themselves. They listen to one radio station all the time, WIIFM. Have you ever heard that one? What's in it for me? (laughs) That's called pastoral humor. WIIFM, it's not an oxymoron. Pastoral humor is a real thing. Only pastors laugh, though. That's the problem. And it's interesting the impact that COVID has on all of this or has had on all of this. We're right on the two-year mark of COVID. It was right at the end of February of 2020 that COVID was ramping up. And there's been some good things. There's been some silver linings, some blessings that have come from COVID. One of those is that churches have drastically expanded their digital reach and to the point that people who never had the opportunity to go to church before have church coming to them. People who are shut-ins, people who are physically incapable of getting to a church for a number of reasons can experience worship and can be connected. And we have some people in our congregation who that describes them perfectly. They could never be a part of what happens here until COVID, until we started pushing that to them. And it was an interesting thing that happened when we went online only for a season. There was about nine or ten weeks where we were online only. Some people found out just how much they loved going to church when they couldn't. When they were physically unable to go, they identified with those shut-ins and those lock-ins. And they engaged in the online ministry, but the second we opened our doors, they were back here. And they put up with all the things that we had to put up with initially. But there were others that got in the habit of watching online. I said, this is really quite nice. I don't have to get dressed. I can watch in my pajamas. I can even do the dishes. I can multitask with church. And they sort of marginalized church and they should have come back a long time ago and they're still watching from home and there's a number of things that you can't do from home you can get most of your needs met if all you really want is to hear a few praise songs and listen to a message then you can get that from home but if you want to serve if you want to expand the kingdom of God you're probably going to need to be here and so that raises an important question in this whole story who are you here for who are you here for? Now, I'm a recovering English major, so I know that the grammar is dubious, that you're not supposed to end a sentence with a preposition. I'm aware of that. But for whom are you here just doesn't carry the same punch. So I'll ask you again, who are you here for? Are you here for him? Are you here for them? Or are you here for you? And it's a good question to ask, and it's a question to ask on a regular basis. Are you here to serve or to be served? And so, yes, there's that aspect to all of this. But there's also another important aspect, maybe just as important, and that's our intention and our mindset keeping people out, like the scribes and the Pharisees. God is for us. We should keep it that way. Versus throwing open the gates of heaven and getting as many people through them as possible. You see, the church in pre-Christ, the synagogue system, had this pattern of elevating sins we don't struggle with, and we've carried that on in the Christian church. We elevate sins that we don't struggle with so that we can look down on our noses at people who do struggle with those. And we can feel good about ourselves because we're in line and feel superior to those who are not. And the question becomes, are we building barriers, are we creating hurdles that people have to jump over to get to God, 
or are we removing them? Are we removing those barriers? Are we throwing open the doors of heaven? And there was an important time in the history of the early church where they were wrestling with this exact issue. And you can read all about it in Acts 15. It's called the Jerusalem Council. And it's pivotal in the life of the early church. And they had to decide, what are we going to do with these Gentile converts? Are they going to have to adhere to the law? Do they need to become circumcised? Which was a big deterrent for men coming to faith in Christ, as you can imagine. The whole idea of table fellowship for people that had never been experienced with it before. This was a big issue. And at this Jerusalem council, they're wrestling with this issue and they're grappling with it. And Jesus' brother, James, gets up and he says something so important in verse 19. I think it was a turning point for the early church. He says in verse 19 of Acts 15, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Wow. We shouldn't make it difficult. He goes on to say we shouldn't lay on them a burden that we couldn't even carry. Christ died for us and for them. We should make, not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. And yet I think there are a number of things that we do, whether that's overtly or covertly, whether it's something that we know we're doing or something we're not even aware that we're doing that make it difficult for those who are not yet in the kingdom of God to come into the kingdom of God. So I want to highlight just a couple of those. One we've already talked about, so I won't belabor it, but coming just for us, coming to get our wants and our needs met, that has a negative impact on the church, a negative impact on others being able to come to faith. When we don't serve, when we don't contribute to the mission, then there are all kinds of good deeds that God created for those who are saved to do that aren't getting done. I'm talking about Ephesians chapter 2 where he preaches the gospel and he says it is by grace that you have been saved lest anyone should boast. This not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. And then in in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, he says, for you are his masterpiece. Not just some haphazard creation, you're his masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That was what Paul said about all of us. And so if we come just for us, we're not doing the good works that God created for us to do. And he has given us his spirit. And he's given us spiritual gifts in order to accomplish those good works that he created for us to do. So we can't just come for ourselves. And we can't allow ourselves to take the focus off of God and to take the focus off of those who are coming to faith and put it on ourselves. We can't do that. And we're really good at spiritualizing this. We're really good at demanding our preferences be met. And we're reading our Bible, and there's a Bible verse that kind of lines up with my preference. And so we share that with the pastor. And we say, see, the God's Word says that we should do this. <laughs> but it's really more about our preference than it's about honoring God's Word. And so when we take the focus off of Him, and we take the focus off of them, and we put it on ourselves, then we're making hard for people who are far from God to get to God. Another way that we do this is gossip. Gossip is so destructive, it's so divisive within the body. Not just when a newcomer hears church folk gossiping. I mean, that's probably like the worst. Why would you want to be a part of that? But when it just kind of creates little cracks for the enemy to move into a church. When we gossip, when we talk about people, when they're not in the room, when we say things about them that we wouldn't say if they were in the room, it's so destructive. Don't sit at that table. 
Proverbs is full of admonitions against it for a good reason. And I found this quote, and I tried to find out who said it, but it's just always anonymous, so I I claim that the internet said it. Gossip dies when it hits a wise person's ears. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that's true? I believe that that's true. Gossip dies when it hits a wise person's ears for a couple reasons. One, wise people know how destructive it is, and they don't want any part of it. But I think there's a second level, and the second level is that wise people understand that if they'll gossip to you, they'll gossip about you. If somebody is gossiping to you about somebody else, they're probably gossiping to, about you to somebody else as well. And so a wise person says, I don't want any part of that. That's destructive to the body. And they call a spade a spade, and they say, I just don't want to sit at that table. I don't want to have that conversation. But there's some less intentional, some, some unintentional or some even less overt ways that we make it hard. And the first would be not considering the newcomer. Yes, it's one thing to have our eyes on Jesus, but it's another thing to intentionally prioritize people that would be coming from outside the faith. And when we don't think about the newcomer, when we don't consider them, when we don't consider how words sound to them, when we don't consider how our Christianese maybe lines up with them, that, that we just, we create it hard for them. We create barriers for them. And we can do this completely unintentionally. But one of the things that we do very intentionally is we partner with church plants because church plants are laser focused on reaching people far from God. And I love that about church plants. And so we've got Pastor Jake from Resilient Church and a couple members of his core team here today. Maybe you saw them on the way in. I hope if you didn't that you will stop and visit their table on the way out and learn a little bit more about what they're doing and what God has called them to do in Vermilion. Jake's going to share about that in a little bit at the, at the close of the message. But, but that's why we partner with them. Not so that we can outsource it, but so that we're connected. And so we have opportunities to be engaged and to be partnering with people who, who are reaching those who are far from God. In fact, <laughs> Linwood has a great history, and we talk about that history, but I want to have a great present as well in church planting. Yes, we planted Celebrate a little over 20 years ago. We, cele- we, we celebrate that. And they're planting churches all over the place. And so we got all these grandkids running around. And we planted Ransom about 10 or 12 years ago. And Ransom is planting Resilient. And so in a very real sense, Jake and his team are our grandkids. And Resilient Church is a, is a grandchild church. And they want to plant additional churches that will have great-grandchildren running all over the place. We are a family of families. What if we were a family of churches? And so when we don't think about the newcomer, and we don't think about what it's like, We don't think about how important it is that when they walk through those doors for the first time, that multiple people welcome them, shake their hand, say, hello, how are you? It's good to see you. I don't think I've met you before. My name is Mark, and I'm glad you're here today. That makes a difference. And it's not just for people that are wearing a lanyard. It's for everybody. When you see somebody you don't know, you should fix that. Another one would be not sharing your faith. Do you realize that when we don't share our faith with the people that God has put in our circle, that we're making it hard for non-believers to come to faith? And if we were to share our faith and give them an access point to come to the faith, that we would be making it easier for them. We'd be giving them an inroad. When we don't share our faith, we make it a little harder. And so we talked about this last week. Parent Forum is, is right on this topic. Right on this topic. Tangible evangelism. How you can grow in practical ways, tangible ways to share your faith. 
And I, like I said, I would love to see every single person. You don't have to be a parent. You don't have to have influence over a young person's life. You can come and learn and grow. And it will make it easier for people who are far from God to come to faith because they'll have an opportunity through you. And maybe a last one I'll throw out here is, is really just not intentionally growing as a disciple. Do you realize that has an impact on the kingdom? When we don't take our discipleship seriously, when we don't take our one-on-one relationship with God seriously through his word, through prayer, through journaling, when we don't meet with other people and experience fellowship around God's word and around what God is saying to us and learn and grow as a disciple, that has an impact on the kingdom because we're not the disciples that we could be. So we're not making the disciples that we could be making. And this has an impact. And there are concentric circles that flow out from that. And so which of these options stands out to you? Which of the things that we've discussed got a little heavy? Maybe you felt the Holy Spirit tap you on the shoulder and say, I think this one might be for you. You see, that's called conviction, and that's not a bad thing. We talk about this often, and every time I bring it up, people say, oh, I'm so glad you shared that. I hadn't heard that before. There's a difference between conviction, which is the Holy Spirit alerting us to something that is out of line in our life. I heard Dallas Willard explain it this way this past week I was reading. He said, conviction is when God's vision for your life is different from your vision for your life or your present reality. And when he alerts you to that gap, it's called conviction. When he says, either through the word or through preaching or through a conversation you have with somebody, it's like, this is my vision for your life, but you're over here. What are you going to do with it? That's called conviction. Condemnation, on the other hand, is a tool of the enemy to push us farther away from God. Conviction is always meant to bring us closer to God and closer to his vision for our lives. So which one did you feel some conviction? And don't outsource conviction either. (laughs) Don't get convicted for somebody else. Conviction is for you. And what will you do with it? Because here's what I know about you. Even if we've never met, you have influence. I know that about you. You have influence. You may have a lot of influence. You may have a little influence. It's far more important what we do with our influence than how much we have. It's far more important what we do with the influence we have than how much we have. And so the fact that you don't have a big platform is irrelevant. If you have influence, if there are other people that will listen to what you have to say then you have influence. What will you do with the influence that you have? And I couldn't mention this point without thinking of a pastor in our story. His name was John Spear. He was a pastor of our church in Wyoming. And he was a natural-born leader. Great influence from an early age, but a very dysfunctional family. And so he had a lot of lifestyle issues to overcome early in his adult life. And he says one of the turning points in his life was when a pastor said to him, John, if you go to heaven, you're going to take a lot of people with you. But if you go to hell, you're going to take a lot of people with you because you have influence. People look to you. They do what you do. When you speak, people listen. Now, fortunately, I'm one of the people that God used John Spear to influence to bring me into not just the kingdom of God. He was there when I accepted the gift of salvation that Jesus had for me. He was speaking to me about a relationship with Jesus Christ. But he was also there when God called me into ministry. 
He was there when he invited me to a discipleship group, and he was there when he said, Pastor Mark, I just, God's got a call in your life. He had influence. And so the question would be, how many people will you nudge towards heaven, towards the cross, towards Jesus? And how many people will you overtly or covertly or completely unintentionally nudge away from Jesus? We should each wrestle with that question. Because we all have influence. I invite the uh, worship team to come up and prepare to lead us in response because, as I said before, how we use the influence we have is far more important than how much influence we have. When we take our influence, big or small, and we intentionally and willfully surrender it to God and say, what do you want me to do with the influence that you have given me? What do you want me to do with what is in my hand? That bears fruit for God's kingdom. And that makes it easier for those who are far from God to come to God. So as we abide in Christ and as we intentionally bring others to him, then we can help them grow and mature and abide themselves. That's our mission statement. That's what we're here for, to reach people for Christ, to give them a place to belong, and to help them grow in their faith so that they will reach people for Christ that we don't know and give them a place to belong and help them grow in their faith so that they can reach more people for Christ and give them a place to belong and help them grow in their faith. So don't sit at tables that Jesus would have flipped. And don't just sit. Do what you can with what you have, with the influence, with the energy, with the gifts and abilities that you have. Invest those in the kingdom. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, even when it is challenging and convicting. We thank you for your grace that meets us at every step. We thank you for the invitation that you give to each and every one of us to take the influence that we have, surrender it to you, and use it as you direct us to reach people for Christ and help them grow in their faith. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have now to respond, maybe to conviction, maybe to the challenge, maybe to something else that you have laid on our heart, Lord, but may we be a people who respond in faith. May we be a people who lean into you and what you have said to us today. In Jesus' name we pray.